the San Francisco Experience podcast. Brought to you by Jim Hurley. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley perspective for a global audience. Featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 23, Episode 1. Human skin color is the product of evolution. In conversation with Professor Nina Jablonski. Our guest today is Nina Jablonski, Atherton Professor and Evan Hugh Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at Penn State University. She joins us from her office in State College, Pennsylvania. Hello, Nina, and welcome to the show. Hello, Jim. It's wonderful to be with you. Nina, what is a biological anthropologist? A biological anthropologist is someone who is particularly interested in the, the biological side of the human condition. Anthropologists study everything related to what makes a human human, including material culture and how people behave, what their culture is like. Uh, biological anthropologists are more interested in the sort of the physical side, the evolution, the biological evolution, the biological adaptations that people have, the genetics of human populations, and how we as biological organisms have adapted with culture to the modern world. So it's a really comprehensive and fascinating discipline. It certainly sounds like it. And Nina, how did you become interested in the subject of the evolution of skin and skin color? Well, Jim, if I told you that it was an accident, would you hold it against me? <laughs> uh, because the original uh, work that that led me to this was actually an accident, attending a symposium, actually attending a seminar presentation that got me thinking about something that made connections with other somethings and that got me into the whole study of the evolution of human skin and skin color. This was over 30 years ago. And one of the things that I realized then was that Skin was this incredibly important biological interface, and skin color was part of this interface between the human body and the outside world. And yet, there was very little published about the evolution of the properties of skin and the and what allowed skin to come in this wonderful array of colors. So it was this sort of original instigation, plus the fact that there just seemed to be no really good body of knowledge out there that led me to pursue this, and boy, it's been a great ride. Well, Nina, what has your research revealed over the last 30 years as you've studied skin pigmentation and skin color? It has been really... uh, the many chapters of what ultimately is a fairly simple and straightforward evolutionary story. It's important for us to recognize that our lineage, our lineage of humans, evolved in equatorial conditions, specifically in equatorial Africa, under strong sunlight. 
also we've had a relationship with strong sunlight during our entire evolutionary uh, evolutionary history. And under that strong sunny regime, we had to learn to keep cool. And but what I mean by learn our bodies had to adapt to learn how to keep cool when we were running around and running away from predators and chasing after things. And we also had to protect our skin from strong sunlight. And so if we go back just to about 2 million years in our evolutionary history, to the first members of our genus Homo, we belong to the species Homo sapiens, and early members of our lineage were really fascinating, uh, quite modern-looking people who had abilities to hunt and scavenge and run around. And it is at that time that we think that people probably acquired or began to acquire mostly naked and potentially very sweaty skin. Mm -hmm. That's when we lost most of our body hair because we were increasing in, in our levels of activity. We needed to be able to get rid of excess body heat through sweat. We gained more sweat glands. And when we lost most of our protective fur, we had to compensate in a variety of ways for that. We never think about fur or a thick coat of hair being a good natural sunscreen, but it is. And so when humans lost most of their luxuriant body hair, we had to somehow protect our skin. And the way that we did this was through the tried and evolutionary solution of putting more natural sunscreen into our skin. Our close primate relatives have the ability to produce the pigment called melanin in the skin when it's exposed to strong sunlight. And when our skin became mostly naked, the great genetic changes that occurred at that time also included the evolution of permanently dark pigmentation. So our skin cells ratcheted up their ability through some genetic changes to produce more pigment that protected us from most of the harmful effects of especially the ultraviolet radiation in strong sunlight. And so uh, the first part of the evolution of skin pigmentation is how our ancestors and how all of the people living today, all of the indigenous people still living today in equatorial regions evolved dark skin, darkly pigmented, sunscreen-rich skin to protect our bodies from the har many harmful effects of ultraviolet radiation. But, you know, all you have to do is, is look around, you know, in San Francisco, in most other big cities, in most other parts of the world, you see people in a whole variety of different colors, not just darkly pigmented people. Because in the history of our lineage, and here I'm speaking of 
Homo sapiens, modern people. Modern people evolved in Africa, and most of our history of Homo sapiens was entirely spent in Africa. We really became every bit modern when we were evolving in Africa. We developed complex language, systems of communication, art, self-decoration, abilities to create structures, all sorts of, you know, all of the things that we, that we identify as, as modern human characteristics. We evolved between about 300,000 years ago when our species first emerged and about 100,000 years ago. Beginning around 100,000 years ago, there are some fairly dramatic uh, environmental changes that are occurring in Africa. And we see some small populations of humans, modern humans, Mm -hmm. sophisticated humans with all of this kit and culture who are beginning to disperse outside of Africa first into the Afro-Arabian Peninsula, a little bit of back and forth there for about 20,000 years. And then by about 70,000 years ago, we see some populations beginning to disperse farther afield into South Asia and Southeast Asia, and then into the hinterland of Eurasia. And when you look at the map, you realize, oh, wow, This is getting out of the tropics. This is way outside of the tropics, in fact. And when we know that when we get out of the tropics, the intensity of sunlight becomes much less. And also, the strength of ultraviolet radiation becomes much, much less, especially the shorter wavelengths of ultraviolet radiation. And the reason that those are important is, first of all, they're very damaging, these shorter wavelengths of ultraviolet radiation, but they do one important positive thing for us, which is they begin the process of making vitamin D in our skin. When we were all living in tropical latitudes and when we were mostly spending time because it was hot, without any clothes on and running around, uh, we were able to make ample amounts of vitamin D in our skin, even though we had a lot of natural melanin sunscreen, which afforded the beautiful dark color to our skin. But when we began to disperse some populations into higher latitudes, the situation becomes very different. Sun is less intense, and the short wavelength ultraviolet radiation called UVB becomes much less intense and much more seasonal. And what that means is that we begin to get shortchanged on vitamin D. Under those conditions, populations that we're dispersing into Europe, as we now call it, and northern parts of Asia are under a lot of pressure, evolutionary pressure, to actually lose pigmentation. Mm. And so 
what we see is natural selection really working, evolution really working to favor those genetic variants that have less pigmentation. Over the course of a few tens of thousands of years, and the pace of this differed in different parts of the world, we see the evolution of lighter, or what I would call evolutionarily depigmented skin. Mm -hmm. Skin that has less protective melanin sunscreen, but that is better able to make vitamin D under reduced UV conditions. And so we evolved by about 30 to 40,000 years ago, lighter skin in populations that were inhabiting uh, higher latitudes while retaining darker skin in, in lower latitudes where people were still living in large numbers and receiving lots of ultraviolet radiation. So by the time we get to, you know, 20, 30,000 years ago, we have Homo sapiens in a beautiful array of skin colors over most of the old world. And then some populations begin to disperse really far afield. Some folks who are living in northern and northeastern Asia travel over and along the coast of the Bering Strait and close to the Aleutian Islands in what is now called Alaska into the North America, the New World. And they are also moderately pigmented people, mostly lightly pigmented, who still have the ability to tan. And we have people also on the other side of Eurasia who are dispersing into more northerly latitudes into more remote parts of, of England, Scandinavia, close to the Arctic Circle. And lastly, we've got folks who are taking off across the Pacific into the islands of the Pacific, uh, all of the many different island chains in Polynesia, which is really some of the last, some of the last remote destinations of human dispersals. And in all of these cases, we have slightly different combinations of pigmentation genes that are affording these different groups slightly different skin colors according to their latitude and the amount of UV they're receiving and according to how much vitamin D is in their diet. So one of the interesting examples that we have of a really cool compromise in between biological changes leading to pigmentation and culture is with Inuit peoples and other uh, circumpolar people who have different levels of skin pigmentation mm. according to how much vitamin D they have in their diet. So Inuit Eskimo peoples have a lot of vitamin D in their traditional diet, and they can actually afford to have slightly darker skin to protect them from the reflected UV that they get off of snow and ice during their 
uh, spring and summer months. So anyway, it's a fascinating story. Mm -hmm. And we developed all of these different skin colors as a result of dispersing in small groups, different genes getting favored under particular UV conditions, and people evolving lighter or darker skin, or sometimes even reversing the process. And we have examples, for instance, in Southeast Asia, where populations we know have gone through periods of loss of pigmentation and then regaining pigmentation as they disperse into more equatorial areas. It's been one, one of these fascinating fascinating sets of evolutionary examples. Nina, can I just interject there? At what point, with the dispersion from Africa out to the north, the south, the east, the west, mm. and particularly to higher latitudes where, where people's, people didn't need as heavy pigmentation, mm. at what point and why did the culture begin to distinguish between people of different pigmentation. I noticed in one of your lectures, you cited the Egyptian history, where in the context of ancient Egypt, there were people of many different hues, if you will, Mm -hmm. uh, living in Egypt, living together, and there didn't seem to be a distinguishing or a gradation of those folks based on skin color. Can you talk to us about the the cultural aspects of different skin culture. Absolutely. And this is a really important point to make. Firstly, um, people in really ancient times, in prehistory, didn't move around all that much. They might be moving to, you know, find food, uh, you know, up to perhaps, you know, 60, 100 miles a year migrating with animals. But they wouldn't be coming in contact with people who looked dramatically different from them because they wouldn't be able to travel very far. The case of Egypt was probably one of the first examples of relatively long-distance travel that was facilitated by the wonderful existence of the, of the Nile River and early boat access along the Nile River. And so what we see there are people probably for the first time who look quite different from one another with respect to skin color coming into contact with one another. And you know what's fascinating, Jim, is that they exchanged all sorts of trade goods. They had lots of, of, of exchanges of, of culture, of ambassadors, They had differences, they had wars, they had periods of treaties, they had a rich cultural interchange, but there was, and there was depiction of different groups as they looked, but there was no labeling of people according to color. And this is fascinating and uniform across the history across prehistory as we know it and across early history is that 
groups of people would differentiate one another according to language Mm -hmm. or their customs or what people might wear, but skin color was not a thing. Uh, We know famously in the case of, of the Greek civilization that they considered that people could be civilized if they if they understood and appreciated Greek culture and not civilized or barbaric if they did not follow Greek culture. And so it had nothing to do with skin color, but whether you uh, appreciated Greek culture and Greek language and, and the tenets of, of Greek philosophy it had very little to do with shared color or physical appearance. In other words, in those early phases of history, we did differentiate groups according to language and what people wore and customs. But the kinds of partitioning of groups that are now familiar to us on the basis of skin color and some other aspects of personal appearance were not taken into account. It's, it's almost impossible for us to think of a time in human history when we didn't think about races, about color-coded races. Mm-hmm. But through most of our history, we didn't know such a thing. We didn't operate on those kinds of classifications and principles. In, in one of your lectures moving on to about the 18th century, you cited two philosophers, John Hume and Immanuel Kant, both of whom were um, outstanding thinkers of their time, but one in England, one in Germany, um, but rather limited in terms of how far they, they ever went to look at the world. Could you tell us about their take on skin color and their the the philosophies that underpinned those beliefs? Well, there was a, a very strong belief, even among these powerful Enlightenment scholars uh, and naturalists like David Hume and Immanuel Kant, there was the strong belief that that skin color had something to do with the environment, but that it also actually informed about uh, a person's behavior, their cultural propensities, their moral background, that color was far more uh, of a comprehensive characteristic, that it reflected not only the intensity of the sun under which people lived, but also the nature of the culture that they that they lived in and the degree to which they were capable of manifesting the highest levels of what Hume and Kant considered to be moral reasoning and penchant for civilized behavior and so they reasoned that the white race as they referred to it to which they belonged, not coincidentally, uh, was capable of the the most moral behavior, the most reasoned thinking, the most uh, prudent pl- 
planning and 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 had the greatest capacity for the growth of civilization. Interestingly, Kant, who looked in this at this in more detail, really looked carefully at the civilizations that he could that he could sample. And remember, he didn't travel at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, he literally never got out of his armchair. <laughs> and so he relied on on second, third, and fourth-hand reports. But from what little he could gather, he said, well, it's really the, the whites by far are superior in all of these abilities. But after that, we have the race of the Negroes, as he called them, who were also capable of very highly developed uh, civilizations, but not nearly as sophisticated as the whites, because their energies were sapped by the strength of the sun. And he gave then other groups, including groups from the Americas and, and the Indian subcontinent, were grouped below. So, you know, he made real categorical judgments about human behavior and pensions for civilized uh, uh, culture according to skin color. And white was where it was at as far as they were concerned. Now, let's move along to the 19th century, mid-19th century, of course. We have Charles Darwin uh, on his voyage of discovery, the HMS Beagle sailing around the world mm. and, and writing The Origin of the Species. Did Darwin speak about race as part of his study of the origin of the species? Well, it's interesting, Jim, that he actually spoke about skin color specifically rather later in his career. After he wrote Origin of Species, he wrote a book specifically on humans and the human condition called The Descent of Man. And in that book, he opined that skin color was probably the product of what he called sexual selection. In other words, it was, it was mate choice that had determined skin color. And he opined that some people under sexual selection would have preferred mates of a particular color, either lighter color or darker color. And so this was one of the, the what I call, you know, Darwin's few errors of, of observation. And I would venture that if Darwin had the data that we have now, which are wonderful data on ultraviolet radiation, genetics, and many other uh, types of information that bear on this problem, I would venture that he would have come to the same synthesis as we have. But his ideas were that really skin color was a matter of choice as opposed to natural selection under physical environmental conditions. Well, let's come up to today, because, of course, there have been enormous leaps of uh, advancement in science generally, and particularly in this field. Where do we stand today, Nina, in terms of the history of pigmentation, skin color, and how are we informed by modern science? Well, we're informed a lot uh, by modern science with respect to educating us on on how we can live better, healthier lives 
recognizing that during much of our evolutionary history, we had a close relationship with the sun, and now many of us don't. We live in offices or in, you know, in homes, and we rarely get outside. So a lot of modern evolutionary medicine is trying to help us live healthier lives now that we have a different relationship with our outdoor environment. So how do we get enough vitamin D through our diet or through supplements? Or how do we protect ourselves from excess sun exposure if we go on holidays to a sunny place? And so these have become more active preoccupations of modern medicine is basically learning how to compensate uh, for our modern conditions through cultural modifications. And also, we've had to make a lot of social adjustments. We've had to recognize that these beautiful, this beautiful array of skin colors that, that has evolved over thousands of years is in fact a product of evolution. It isn't some accident of, of, you know, having anything to do with divine curses or divine blessings. It isn't some kind of, of strange, you know, godly or ungodly accident. It's a product of evolution, and we need to understand that. <clears throat> the, the tenets that framed scientific, <coughs> excuse me, the tenets that framed scientific racism and these, uh, these color-based races that we have operated under for a few hundred years have had to be re-examined. We have to now really say, well, okay, we understand that the world was framed, especially in the United States, in terms of white, black, and a few in-between brown categories. But those categories were wrong to begin with. And so now there is a big scientific and sociological reckoning with the continuity of skin color and what that means in terms of how we define ourselves as different groups of human beings but all human beings. And so it's a real renaissance time, Jim. It's a renaissance time in terms of, of the science of skin color and how we have to learn how to be modern people and make cultural adjustments and how we have to learn to live with the real injustices that, we're, that, we're, that we are all living under as a result of the race labels of David Hume, Immanuel Kant, and many of the other race makers of the 18th century. Well, Nina, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts? This has been a very enlightening discussion that we've had today. And in particular, the, the, your closing remarks here really give us great hope. Absolutely. There is great hope, Jim. I mean, the wonderful thing about doing this kind of work is, is realizing that we can, we can change. We can change as individuals in our behavior. We can change as groups of people, family groups, classrooms. We can change as a society. 
And one of the things that I'm dedicated to now is public education and reaching out to kids, you know, writing books for kids, doing programs for kids, because when we can teach kids about the richness of their evolutionary history, the beauty of their own evolution and the beauty of their own skin and the story behind how they look. And then the story of the mistakes that people made in classifying people according to color and recognizing that, hey, we can live beyond these mistakes. We can do better. We can be better for one another. That's what gets me up in the morning. That's what keeps me going every day. Well, Nina, on that very uplifting note, I want to thank you very much for having joined us today. And how can our listeners follow you? Well, I have to confess, Jim, I'm not much of a social media person, but I keep a very up-to-date website. If you put me into any search engine, you'll come up with with my websites uh, that, uh, that are operated under my Penn State banner, but I've got a, a, a blog site where I have all sorts of links to lectures, books, other podcasts, uh, videos, you name it. Uh, there's a lot of media that people can, uh, can enjoy, whether they want to listen for 12 minutes or a full hour to me. There's a lot out there, and certainly there's a lot to read as well. So I encourage them to just put me into a search engine and follow the clicks. <laughs> well, that's exactly what I did, Nina. Once again, Nina, thank you so much for enjo- for joining us today and for sharing your your academic research with us and look forward to having another conversation with you at some point in the future. Jim, thank you so much for your invitation. I've enjoyed it greatly and and uh, enjoy being a colorful human being. <laughs> Once again, thank you so much, Nina. And for okay. a- And for our listeners, today's episode is number 447. The San Francisco Experience podcast is carried on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Pandora, 18 platforms with listeners in 60 countries. Feedspot recently recognized us as a top California news podcast, one of the top 25 California news podcasts. This has been the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco. Thank you.